Welcome to Me and Mary Jane with your host, Patricia A. Patton. Well, hello everyone. This is Patricia A. Patton, aka Canna Boomer, and I'm here on the Me and Mary Jane podcast. This season, I'm focusing on conversations with people smarter than me. And today I'm joined by Valerie Young, Dr. Valerie Young. Uh, many of you are familiar with her. She is highly regarded. I'm a huge fan girl. Uh, as an expert on imposter syndrome. I recently went back through her book. Uh, It's an award-winning book, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from the Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. I know Valerie because I was a franchisee or just a fangirl really following her around everywhere for a good spell there in her passion, profit from your passion um, business that she has since sold. We'll come back to that today. I wanna welcome you first of all, and just blah, blah, not go on too much. I am really excited to be here, Patricia, and it's great to see you again. Yes, this is someone I have never had a conversation with Valerie, where I did not leave with something specific that I could actually do to improve my situation. Often it has not been something that I could do the whole thing, but I was going back over the last time I had a conversation with you on Facebook, really trying to see had I put those things in motion. So today what I wanna talk to you about is um, how to apply your life's research or this portion of your life's research on people who are entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Um, I really would like to see if you could help me think more critically for people who are say over 50 male and female, which I know you can. Um, And the main thing I want to understand is how do you address lots of the feelings of incompetency as you're working through new areas in your life. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a great question. And as you know, you know, I love entrepreneurs, I love small business owners, I love people who are aspiring to be self-bossers, you know, that's just <laughs> the world I'm really really comfortable in and and I am over 50, I'm 66. So familiar with that audience as well. Um, it might help if I just explain a little bit to listeners who don't know what imposter syndrome is, what that term means. Um, it's actually, it's not a fancy term for low self-esteem. I always tell people, think of self-esteem as this kind of global sense we have about ourselves. 
But imposter feelings are very specific to achievement arenas, work, school, career, business. You don't feel like an imposter when you're walking the dog or walking on the beach or going grocery shopping, right? But you, you might when you have to go to this, some uh, meeting, when you are pitching your first client, uh, when you have, you're putting out your shingle and you've never done it before, but you're telling people, yeah, I know how to do this. And you're kind of winging it a little bit in the beginning. Um, or you have to make a presentation or a job interview, whatever that might be, this little voice comes up that says, you know, I, I'm in over my head and I'm going to be found out. Uh, it was a term coined, actually, it really is called the imposter phenomena. It's not really a psychologically diagnosable syndrome, but the term was coined in 1978 by two psychologists, Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes. And basically it describes this sense that, you know, often unconsciously that I'm really not as intelligent, capable, competent, as everybody thinks I am, um, and that we, we feel this way despite evidence of our past accomplishments or our abilities, right? So in other words, we kind of, we explain them away because, you know, you can see the degree on the wall, you can hear the positive reinforcement or praise, uh, you know, you got the promotion, but basically we say, well, sure, I did it, but I can explain all that. So we say, well, I was lucky, it was a fluke, I had connections. Well, it's just because they like me. That's why they said it was great. Um, you know, and we kind of dismiss it and explain it, explain it away. And then we're left, you know, with this kind of confidence issue, thinking everyone is smarter and more capable than we are. So I have run into that syndrome of late. I've been for the past three years, really like doing the thing that I do always. Like I mm -hmm. feel like I need a broad understanding of the whole field in order to then feel comfortable functioning right. within the area that, you know, I decided to master. Mm -hmm. Is that a typical approach? To this? Yeah. 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 It's, it's kind of the expert trap, you know, the, 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 there's lots of reasons, perfectly good reasons why people feel like imposters. Uh, but I think the core reason, Patricia, is we have this unrealistic, unsustainable definition about what it means to be competent. We hold ourselves these high standards that we can't consistently hit. So for some people, it's perfectionism. So, you know, they have to, 99 out of 100 would feel like failure. Everything has to be perfect or they feel like an imposter. For others, there's that expert trap, you know, that it's kind of the knowledge version of the imposter. So you feel like you need to know not just 100%, but 150%, like everything there possibly is to know. So there's always one more book to read, one more class to take, one more degree or designation to get, this kind of endless pursuit of the end of knowledge, right? Where we're waking to wake up one day and say, now <laughs> I'm an expert. Um, the natural genius. Yeah. For them, they define competence as being about ease and speed. I mean, the fact that somebody might have to struggle to master something or understand some part of their business proves they're an imposter because they think if I was really competent, this wouldn't be so hard, right? They expect it to just hit the ground running and pick it up really quickly. Uh, and then there's the soloist who thinks it only counts if I do it all by myself. And the fact that they might have to get help, tutoring, mentoring, coaching, support proves they're an imposter in their mind. And then lastly, the kind of superwoman, superman, super student who not just expects themselves to excel in their business or their work or their career or school, but as, as a parent, as a partner at home, member of their extended family, and they host all the family gatherings, do it perfectly, uh, volunteer in their community. So they expect to excel on all these different levels. 
So nobody can consistently hit these markers that we set for ourselves. And when we fall short, you know, we, well, that proves in our mind, we must be an imposter. So I think I read this morning um, a question that I had intended to ask you about how does one actually work through this? I mean, your book clearly gives specific exercises, mm -hmm. questions that you can ask yourself about it. Um, and as you were describing the different ones, I was thinking to myself, well, I have a little bit of all of that. You know, yeah. I mean, I have a little bit of, sometimes I feel like, why is it so hard for me? Or how could this person know this? You know, like mm -hmm. I'm smarter than them, but maybe not smarter in that way. So here I am, I'm using myself as an example for this conversation in an, uh, in an area in, that's being, that socially is changing the world culturally with the emergence of plant medicine and mm -hmm. um, even the idea of sort of returning for those of us who are older, where there's an acceptance that maybe plant medicine is as good or better than pharmacology. Mm -hmm. So now we have the same problems that we do with any industry where uh, if you don't have access to a distribution platform, you yep. it's hard to get your message out. One of the things you told me when I asked me the same question over and over different ways was that I had to be specific about who I was talking to uh, and about my brand, you know, like I had to really kind of figure that part out. Now, in this case, let's say, as always, I'm talking or want to talk to people over 50. Just because we spend money, mm -hmm. uh, we are troubled by really a lot of things that other people are, but maybe more frequently now, insomnia, inflammation, yeah. you know, pain, yeah. you know. And I'm looking for ways to not get slapped down every time I go out and try to bring this into conversation or identify the people who think it's important enough to pay me to take, to be the bridge. That's the key. That's the key is, is who wants what you have, right? Who's going to pay you because there are always people who are going to slap us down and we can't concern ourselves with them. You know, I always tell people, none of us have any control over what anyone thinks of us. We can only control our response. So in, in this case, to kind of ignore those folks. Uh, now, if the people are slapping you down or the people who you're trying to get in front of, that's, that's another consideration, but it doesn't sound like that's what's happening. So, you know, fundamentally for anybody going into business, it's, it's going to be about who wants what you have. Uh, you know, who's the most obvious customer or client or, uh, and then, as you know, cause we've talked about this from the profit from your passion coach training program through changing course.com is to, to kind of go to the outer ring, to not just look at the most obvious customer or client, but to think in terms of who else is going after that market, who you could partner with, who would sponsor you. So they might be a regular sponsor of your show. Um, I mean, here's the tricky thing with what with what you're doing is, I mean, or the, you know, they might have you lead workshops or what have you. The tricky thing about what you're doing, Patricia, is right. I, I know marijuana is uh, legal in Massachusetts, and yeah. people are making money, you know, hand over fist. So, you know, if, if they're doing super well, 
they might think, oh, I don't need anybody to build any bridges because I've already got the market. That said, um, I think what you bring to the table is something unique. You're a black woman of a certain age. Yes, I am. Absolutely. And, you know, and I think you should ride that horse in the direction that it's going, that that makes you different. If you were 25, it would be very different. You'd be, you know, like a lot of folks, right? But you're not, you know, you're, you're bringing this voice. You come from a certain era. I don't know about you, but I was, you know, smoke a pot when I was in. I'm older than you, so you know I did. Um. You know, but but so you come out of this particular ex- life experience, and you're bringing a experience, and you're interested in helping people heal, and you know how can you use, you know, uh, uh, herbs and medicinals to to kind of help folks. So, I mean, I think it's going to come down to. I, I mean, I think you could make some really cool TikTok videos because you'd be unique on that platform. Um, Who would expect you to say that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's an asset, you know? I mean, we we need to also identify what are the assets that we can monetize. And for you, that that is a big asset of yours, which I would play play into. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whether it is um, AARP. So it's always gonna come down to like finding the right person who could champion you as somebody on the inside. I mean, and who knows, they may not want to go that direction because it may feel controversial to them or they might, you know, I don't know if they have a, I don't know if they have like a page, I get the magazine, but like where somebody kind of writes their story. No, they're, they don't have that. I think that because I, because in my opinion, they're an insurance company, they, and because um, cannabis is still classified as uh, federally. Yes. As uh, schedule one drug that they're not touching it for the moment, but they're in, they're in the the shadows. They are supporting um, information like this for younger women, but not okay. for older women in sort of an educational format. And that's really all, you know. And they might be nervous about litigation and you know and, and things like that. You know, of recommending anything on the medicinal side side of things. Um, but I think, and what state are you in? I'm in the state of New Jersey, which recently went adult use. It was already medicinal, but there the laws are not on the books yet. So there's yeah. a lot of room. I would see, you know, I would see, I know in Massachusetts, there's a lot of conversation about the fact that a lot of people of color ended up in jail. True. Over drugs. And, 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 and then the people who are now monetizing the heck out of the legality are mostly, you know, white folks and most of them are white men. And so there are people in that world who, who had access, who are doing very well in that business, I think who are interested in finding ways to be more inclusive and to do take steps that they can take to uh, address that, you know, that they're aware of the, that kind of privileged position that they're in. So I think, you know, and, and here's where imposter syndrome, we kind of come full circle because then it gets back to a confidence issue, you know, of feeling confident enough to kind of pick up that phone. Uh, if they don't respond, pick it up again. If they don't respond again, send them, send them a package in the mail. I mean, do whatever you need to do to get their attention and to, to have a really strong proposal about what you could offer them, whether it's a series of webinars on their website, you know, to find out like, how are they marketing now? And then what would you do specifically 
to educate and inform a demographic that they might not necessarily be reaching as well as they could? I think this is a, you know, in terms of my life and what I'm doing, that hits home because I've definitely um, reached out in places where I felt that there was room for this and, you know, not gotten really any response. And, mm -hmm. you know, the first thing I thought was, well, this is because I'm not important enough. You know, if I, if I were uh, a celebrity, perhaps they would respond. And maybe that's not the case at all, but that's the yeah. first thing you I think. don't know that it is. I think people are busy. I mean, I, I'm looking at my to-do list. I owe a couple people emails who, who I know very well, who said like, would you review my book? And it's like, oh, you know, cause I don't really have time. And so it's kind of going down my to-do list and I'm hoping they get back in touch with me cause I will respond the second time. Um, let me tell you a quick story. Um, there's this guy, Mike Massimino. He wrote a book called Spaceman about his unlikely journey growing up working class kid on Long Island, achieving his lifelong dream of becoming a NASA astronaut. I heard him on a podcast talking about how just before his first shuttle deployment, he experienced imposter syndrome. So I read his book and then I, I looked him up. He's at MIT, uh, not MIT, he's at... Um, Columbia. He's at Columbia School, uh, College of Engineering in, on the faculty now because he's retired from NASA. And I noticed that his office hours only are Wednesday morning. Well, I was speaking Wednesday afternoon to graduate students at Columbia. So I emailed him, you know, Mr. Massimino, I read your book. I speak at Imposter. I'd love to meet with you. Crickets. Nothing. So I thought perhaps he didn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> So, because I figured he's getting lots of emails. Right. So I put my book in a box and I mailed it to him with a letter because you can't ignore a box. True. Similarly, you know, is there something you could, you know, I mean, you don't want to send a, maybe a CD. I don't know. People will be nervous about putting something in their computer, you know, just, right. but is there something, a link where you could say, I made this recording. If you go to this link, I've made a recording and you can just send the message that way. But send them something in the mail. It's harder to ignore something in the mail. So he responded and, and I met with him. Um, and, and I said, Mike, I read your book and I don't think you had imposter syndrome. He said, you don't? I said, no, I think you had, holy crap, I'm going into outer space and a tin can syndrome. And, and the reason I said that is his whole book is a case study in non-imposter thinking. When he was at MIT getting his master's, he got a 12 in one exam. He got an 18 in another exam. He was crushingly disappointed. He thought about dropping out, but instead he got together in a study group with other failing students and they studied together and they were able to raise their grades. Then he failed his qualifying exams to go on to get the PhD. You can't continue if you fail the, qual the qualifying examination, which is an, uh, an oral uh, exam in his case. Again, crushingly disappointed, almost quit the whole thing. But again, he got together with other people who helped prepare him for that battery of questions from his committee. He went back and did some more research and he passed it the next time. He had one more shot. So it's not that adversity and difficulty and setbacks don't happen. It's how we, how we deal with them that really matters. You're right. And I mean, you know, I've lived long enough to know that you're right. There's really nothing I could say. This is what my mother would even tell me that you, <laughs> my mother knows. <laughs> that you and even if they look at you like, oh, it's that annoying woman who's sending me another thing in the mail. It's like, well, after a while, they're going to go, you know, send him a pizza. You know what I mean? Have a pizza delivered. Who's the guy who, I forget the name of the actor, the movie um, about Queen, the, um, 
Oh, uh, Ramen? Rhapsody. Uh, what was the name of that movie? Anyway, excellent movie. I think he won the Academy Award. Um, and I was not a big Queen fan, but I just fell in love when I saw the movie. Well, he was a struggling actor. His family is Egyptian-American. His sister's a doctor. His father's a doctor. They wanted him to have this professional career, and he wanted to be an actor. Um, and so he was delivering pizza part-time. And it under he would tape on the bottom of the pizza boxes his resume or like his, you know, whatever, his, his information, because he was delivering them in L.A., Yes. And he figured sooner or later, somebody might see it. And sure enough, this woman read it. Like, I'm going to give this guy a shot. He's got, you know, some hutzpah here. So uh, gave him a shot. And he said, well, I don't have a, he said, have your agent call me. I don't have an agent. And he didn't have an equity card, but somehow she just said, okay, gave him a shot. And that launched his career. So that this, this should be inspirational for a lot of people, you know, because you know, it's easy enough to say, you know, try, if that fails, then try again. Like, I think you even have a statement about what failure is. I mean, I've gotten to the point where I consider all my failures as badges of honor somewhat, you know? Yeah, because uh, if you're not, you're not, the, if people who don't feel it's because they don't try anything. Right. You right. know, uh, you know, you, as you know, I know a lot of millionaire online business owners and mostly men and their mantra is half ass is better than no ass. Yeah. You know, and they don't mean do a bad job. It's like, you got to get version one out the door and you can course correct as you go along. Right. If you want to put on big boomer conferences for people over 50 on pot, I mean, that's another way to monetize it, you know, and have all these businesses there, right. Who are going after that market. Yeah. Your second conference is going to be better than the first one. Okay. You guys, the third one's going to be better than the second. You guys, I don't know if you, understand she just dropped a gem on there like she just dropped a gem listeners to do x y and z you could do x y and z like nothing this is like one of the things that i always really admired about you because i think that while you talk about this particular topic what you're really talking about is a kind of mindset you know that you have like you really should be out there with what's her name she's like the expert uh, she is the one who popularized the idea of a growth mindset. Her name oh, is Carol Dweck. Yes. You should be with Carol Dweck in these conversations because you're really talking about the kind of mindset that you need if you are in any way ambitious, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, and this is really one that, um, I've been so happy. I mean, I haven't made any money to speak of, but I've been really happy um, just really deeply getting into who I am and trying to bring that full with, you know, all its warts and everything else into space, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, I, that's one of the reasons, it's the primary reason I really wanted people to, share and listen to you because I want people to understand, even though this is the cannabis space, the cannabis space is a part of whatever your real life is. It's not sure. just a thing all by itself, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter if you're in business or not. You know, I mean, I think that the message is, is the same. It's about being creative, you know, uh, you know, I call them workarounds, right? When, when you run into a barrier, if you were driving down the street and, and you came across a tree that fell across the road, you wouldn't just turn off your car and sit there and die and starve to death, right? You'd figure out another way 
to, to get there. True. True, 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 true. I want to talk a little bit about playing big. Okay. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about playing big because, um, because it's something that I never really thought about in words. Mm -hmm. But when I thought about, when I read the book and I realized that, you know, growing up working class family, uh, being a real high achiever, you know, everybody being proud of me, everybody wanting me to go far in life. um, Me just kind of moving into that space of other people's expectations, but having my own dreams, you know, and then feeling that kind of the split between wanting to do what I wanted to do and wanting to live out the dreams that people had put in my mind. Right. So, um, so I wondered about, so this whole idea of playing big, um, for me begins at home with a brother who does what he wants to do and gets a lot of attention. And I learned to push down, you know, uh, my achievements because people say, well, of course you would do that. I mean, this is easy for you, you know? So as an older adult who is now trying to address those hangups, let's call Mm -hmm. them that, Mm -hmm. um, and to blossom, you know, into my fullness, in spite of that, I am realizing that there's something about, there's you know, you can hide behind other people's achievements. You know, you can work on other people's dreams yeah. instead of your own dreams. Now, I don't know if you would call that imposter syndrome, but it seems like it might be related. Well, you know, flying under the radar is one of, a kind of a coping, can be a coping mechanism of imposter syndrome. Um, because if you play small, no one will find you out. You know, if you don't start your business or scale your business or bring your art to a gallery or write your book or go for the promotion or speak up in a meeting or offer your ideas or opinions, then no one can judge you. You know, so it's safer. You avoid disappointment, humiliation, failure. Uh, and, you know, so we, we get something out of that, but always at a cost, right? We pay a price for the protection that we get from our pattern. So playing big for some one person, it might be, you know, going up the corporate ladder. For somebody else, it might be scaling their business. For somebody else, it might be going after a, a big gallery, you know, or, or auditioning for a part that seems, you know, way beyond you, or just running for school committee, or stepping down, leaving, a, you know, a well-paying job to, you know, travel around the country in your RV, or just, you know, do something really off, you know, outside the mainstream, right, outside the job box. So there's many ways to play big. It, depending on our definition of success. I think a great exercise, Patricia, I I did this years ago, was to sit down and and write an article. Don't worry about the the quality of it. That's not important. But write an article about the future you. You know, it could be, you know, your obituary, God forbid. But, you know, this kind of article that you could, um, you know, so Patricia A. Patton, um, you know, was a late bloomer when it comes to the, to this topic. Um, you know, she kind of wondered like, where's her market? Who needs to hear her voice? And then one day it came to her, Oprah. So she, she, she tried and tried and tried to get in front of Oprah and she finally did it. And now she's a world recognized, you know, person who she doesn't want to call herself an expert. Shouldn't think that's useful. She's a, a bridge. 
you know, I mean, use that thing that like you, you, the concern about being an expert to, to actually, you take that on and say, uh, I'm, look, I'm not here to be an expert. I'm here to be a bridge you know, cool. and just own that. Right. But anyway, so you write this story about yourself, your future self, and then take a look at it like the day later and go, if you picked up a magazine and you read that about somebody else, could you believe that that might be true? And, and think about how, how angry you'd be if you were like, oh my God, somebody's doing this thing. Not that more than one person can't do it, but you'd be like, wait a minute, that's my dream, right? If it's believable that somebody else would do it, why not you? Why not you? Yeah, that is the question. Why not? Why Absolutely. not? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Diane DiNapoli, AKA the Penguin Lady, um, you know, when she was, she dropped out of college, she was working as a silversmith, um, making jewelry and stuff, but she always had this passion for endangered species. When she was a kid, her parents had to pull her away from SeaWorld, watching the trainers work with the, um, uh, the dolphins. So later in life, around 30 something, she decided to go back to school to get a degree in, I don't know, sure, biology or whatever. But people dissuaded her. They said, it's too hard. You're not good in math. There's a lot of competition. And I love what Diane said. She said, somebody's going to get that cool job. It might as well be me. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So she ended up at the New England Aquarium. She ended up, I mean, then she, afterwards she left. Um, she's been the penguin aquarist on, on the Antarctica tours with National Geographic. She was interviewed by CNN. She got a six figure book deal. I mean, she's just done, the, done like three or four TED talks. She's just this amazing person, but it all began with going, why not me? So I think that's a perfect place to sort of wind it up. I could talk to you for, I could drink wine and whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So, but so this is, this is the the sentence I had sort of put to wind the conversation up that says it's in your your final thoughts where it says, remember, it's been found that 70% of people have experienced feelings of fraudulence. That begs the question, what's up with the other 30%? Given how widespread and normal the imposter phenomena is, why is no one studying the people who've never felt this way? The point is, if feelings of self-doubt and phoniness and self-criticism and fear were all bad, it seems unlikely that they would be so familiar to so many emotionally well-adapted people or so useful. I found that to be um very telling and um i was looking here quickly on my phone to see where i posted that i was going to be talking to you a lot of people popped in to thumb me up or to say because i asked have you ever suffered from this Mm -hmm. you know or did you find that you suffered at various times in your life and people said things like well i always considered it to be a chronic condition that only if you experienced it throughout your life would it be considered um, the imposter syndrome. Or someone else said something like, well, um, why isn't that other person just a, another side of you rather than considering the fact that you're participating in the imposter syndrome? Mm-hmm. I want to say one other thing, and that is I want to acknowledge um the fact that your book does address the circumstances of people born 
<laughs> black or BIPOC or mm -hmm. LGBTQ, that that is considered inside the context of the conversation. Because I noticed this morning there was a Harvard Business Review article, two younger women had written that the idea of the imposter syndrome was not well-founded because it did not take into consideration people of color or uh, black and brown folk. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Their argument, I'm very familiar with the article. Their, their argument is that, I think it's called stop telling women they have imposter syndrome, yes. that, that basically the problem is systemic, you know, racism and sexism in organizations. My view is it, I think if you are out there speaking and positioning yourself as any kind of specialist or educator or expert on imposter syndrome, you absolutely have to be looking at the social dimension of it. You know, one of the perfectly good reasons is a sense of belonging fosters confidence. So when you walk into a classroom or a meeting or a workplace, or certainly the executive level in any organization, the more people who look like you, the more confident you feel. The more people who sound like you, the more confident you feel. If, if you know English is not your first language, if you have a strong regional or kind of working class accent, you're going to feel less confident. So that's true for people for whom um, English is not their first language, you know, international students, international employees. Uh, if you are one of the few or the first or the only one who looks like you, you've got that added pressure to represent your entire group. Uh, I wrote a blog post called Unpacking Michelle Obama's Imposter Syndrome, which looks at not how could Michelle Obama have imposter syndrome, but how could she not? Right. right? And also she's uh, first generation. So if you're first generation to go to college or have a professional job, you're also more susceptible. And this is true for any group who experiences um, stereotypes about competence, um, you know, or, or, or um, you know, intelligence. So, you know, folks with disabilities, right? They have that pressure to represent their whole group and be like super disabled person. If you're the youngest person in a work context, you probably know what it's like to be underestimated. If you're the oldest person, you probably know what it's like to be underestimated. When I asked that question to Facebook employees, when I spoke there, how many of you have been the oldest and felt underestimated? The 30 year olds raised their hand at Facebook. Getting. Yeah, well, in technology, you know, it's like you're 38. What do you know, right? You got the, all these 22 year olds. But here's the thing about that article. They're right. You have to consider the social context, but there's more going on. Student, there's situational factors. Students as a group at universities are much more likely to feel like imposters than people who aren't students, especially graduate students. Almost by definition, doctoral students feel like imposters. People who work alone are more vulnerable as well. You, it's easy to get in your head, right, when you work alone. Um, we know that people in certain fields are more susceptible. Actors, writers, artists, Maya Angelou, um, um, uh, Tom Hanks, Tina Fey, so many accomplished people have talked about their imposter feelings. Because when you're in a creative field, you're being judged by subjective standards, by people whose job title is professional critic. People in science, technology, medicine, in very information-dense, rapidly changing fields are also more susceptible. And there are certain organizational cultures like medicine and higher education that, that by the dynamic of the culture fuels self-doubt. So I agree with that article. You have to address that. But they need to widen that lens. There's, there's more going on than just gender. There's more going on than just race. And there's more going on than just there is a strong intersection with diversity and inclusion, but there's more going on. There's other factors as well. Okay, guys. So now you know. And if you <laughs> now you know <laughs> more information than you wanted there, Patricia. <laughs>
No, no, no. It's great. It's great. And I will put the link for that article. So if, if you're interested in sort of following that thread, you can link back to the article that we are re referencing uh, from the Harvard Business Review. Yep, I've seen that. Back. And you can link to the Michelle Obama article as well. This is true. So, you know, I'm talking to a badass, you know. So um, she's the author of The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from the Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. But she's also much more than just the author of that because she's taken this idea and she's a master at um, straight talk that really anybody can understand, but also for me, you're like a, you're like a jazz player because you can think and apply principles on your feet. And um, there's a certain clarity and um, it's something to be admired and replicated really, you know, like to stand in your, stand in your power and do the best that you can with what you know. I love that about you. So I want everybody to know I've only met Valerie one time, but I'm just like a super fan girl. So thank you so much. Can I throw one more thing out there? Cause I'm really <laughs> excited about it is I just recently co-founded the imposter syndrome Institute. So what we are doing is we're going to be launching this licensing program to license uh, professional speakers and workshop leaders. Uh, they will be trained and licensed in my Rethinking Imposter Syndrome program. And then in the fall, we're going to launch an enterprise version for companies like, you know, Google or Microsoft or universities so they could bring it in-house because our mission is to kind of stamp out imposter syndrome around the world, have a global network of people delivering this message. Because uh, I'm not going to do this forever, and I want to leave a legacy and some tools behind for other people to kind of continue the work. I love the idea, and I'm sorry I didn't bring it up because I did see it. I got carried away, but I looked at it because, in terms of the, I mean, it's a conversation for another topic, you know, sure. for another interview. Because I love the business part of how you have leveraged one thing to something else. There's something in that whole process from, uh, I don't know what was before pa uh, profiting from your passions, but I can see something happening and I love it. Yeah. So thank you once again to Dr. Valerie Young. Um, I'm going to add her website and connections for uh, links rather for some of her TED talks. And um, I hope you'll enjoy it and give me some feedback as to um, what your experience is with this conversation. Thanks again, Valerie. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us today. Pass the word, share the love, like, subscribe, tell a friend. Can't wait to talk to you again on the next episode. Thank you.